It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is Rebecca Says, a freelance journalist from the West Midlands in the UK, whose words about film, TV, music, games, and all that is good in horror have featured in the likes of Screen Rant, Ghouls Magazine, as well as mainstream outlets such as Metro UK and Digital Spy. Welcome to the show. Hello. We're going to do three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. But before we do, let's just take a temperature on writing about horror as a freelance journalist. What's the landscape looking like these days for a freelance journalist who has a particular interest in horror films? Where where can you where can you where is it how are people receiving it as a, as a genre these days? I mean, with the landscape of cinema as it is at the moment, I mean, 2023 so far, we've had such a fantastic year for horror releases. Obviously, we've had Evil Dead Rise, which smashed expectations. We've just had Talk To Me that's smashed expectations. Really, really good place. And I think that's really reflecting on horror journalism as well. We've got a lot of people in the UK and also further afield that have got a lot to say about horror as it is at the moment. And then... That also transfers into then writing about horror at the moment. There's, I mean, like we said, I write pieces for Gold Magazine. I also write for Moving Pictures Film Club, both two UK-based horror publications that are always looking to amplify voices of horror journalists in the UK and worldwide. And then you've obviously got the larger publications, things like Dread Central, Fangoria, uh, Bloody Disgusting, that are also doing fantastic work to amplify horror in the world of entertainment. So it, it's a really good place to be in right now. The 20, 21st century has seen a lot of sort of changes in the way that we consume media. And and I feel, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like that's been to the benefit of horror in some ways. How, how do you feel about how, you know, the, the access to films like never before seems to be the the thing for me. I mean, I think I've seen more Spanish horror films in the 21st century than I saw the previous rest of my life, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely think the rise of streaming and definitely the rise of social media as well to really help use that, like, recommendations, like, sort of like that word-by-mouth sort of marketing of films. It really helps to get the word out there of mm. films that maybe we'd never hear of before. I mean, the Terrifier films, for example, are, a gra- I think, a great, great example of that they're films that maybe a few years ago wouldn't have necessarily got as big as they have but through social media and word of mouth of people saying like you've got to see this it's so gory it's so disgusting again that absolutely smashed expectations of even i think the directors and the people involved in the film to the point now we've got a third film it hit cinema screens when it was meant to be just straight to release so yeah i definitely agree i do think how we consume media has definitely gone hand in hand with the success of horror films recently. I mean, Terrifier 2 is a really interesting example, isn't it? I mean, 
as you say, a pretty disgusting film. So what what made that sort of become sort of more popular than just simply being something that exists strictly in the kind of horror ghetto? It kind of, it, it came out of there, didn't it, in a way? Yeah, absolutely. I think definitely the use of social media with it, like sites like TikTok, Twitter, people talking about it on Facebook and really, I wouldn't say in this example, like blowing it up. Mm. Like sometimes you do get it when people say, oh, it's the scariest film I've ever seen. And it's not necessarily, but then people go and watch it anyway. And then it really brings that film to the forefront. But I think with Terrifier 2, it was definitely a case of it was matching what people were saying. So then it was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So more and more people were seeing it. And there was more of a demand for people wanting to see it. And I think that's what it boils down to, like the demand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, because I remember um, I remember one film in recent years, and when I say recent, I mean like last 10, uh, I think The Witch was coming out of Sundance, was billed as the scariest film you'll ever see. Where I mean, it wasn't. And the fact that it wasn't hasn't done Eggers, the director, any harm. But it was weird to see that was the kind of, the, the weight behind it was, you're going to see the scariest film ever. And you're like, well, really? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it happens with a lot of films, doesn't it? It'll be that there's a couple of reactions of people saying that it's the scariest film and then it gets picked up by journalists then writing about this comment and the reaction because people then read that reaction. I mean, I see it as a journalist myself. Like I've done pieces like that based on the reaction to certain things, whether it be a film or a TV show or just something happening in the public. And people do read them and then they react to that. And then it it, it just gets views in for the websites. But then I think it does work for the film and TV shows because it just gets it out there and it gets people seeing it. And whether it is the scariest film they've seen or not, sort of, it becomes unimportant based on how they enjoyed the film. The Witch being a great example, like it's not one that I particularly found scary, but it is one that I did watch because people were talking about it. And it's one that now is a firm favourite. I've rewatched it tons of times. I enjoy Robert Eggers' films, and that was the first one that I saw. You and me both. It was uh, yeah, it was one I, I went out and saw twice in the cinema, never mind the repeat watches afterwards. Yeah, it is fantastic. I went to see it in the cinemas as well, and it is a real cinema experience. And I think that's another way that like social media has really helped with horror. A lot of horror films are a real cinema experience. You need to be with a crowd to watch these films. You need to be in that ideal setting to watch them. Now, this this question comes from just something that came up today, actually. There was, a, there was um, an article on The Guardian about, about the state of film criticism and whether or not it was even relevant anymore with the sort of rise of the influencer. And part of the, part of the argument in the article was about, you know, the kind of people that are getting into the big previews of stuff. They don't even they don't even have to have like any film knowledge and stuff. How important when you're covering horror do you feel like having the kind of the canon or the language of horror, you know, where, where it's evolved from and where it's evolving to, to, you know, to be able to write about it? Because I think I feel, you know, as a genre fan myself and as a person who's writing genre screenplays, I feel like you get found out if you're not really knowing too much about what you're talking about. We see a lot, don't we, in terms of when <laughs> You know, why do they not make any decent horror films anymore when when a, when a horror film becomes popular? And you're like, hold oh, a minute, there's, there's, here's a list of a hundred that you've just that you've you've that you've missed. Um, but how, for you for you as a writer, how, how important do you feel that when you're pitching stuff, having having an awareness of the canon as well as like you know, Terrified Two is is popular or has become popular? Yeah, absolutely. I'd read that article today. Actually, it's been like a big talking point among journalists, freelance and staff journalists as well. Mm. 
I think as a writer in anything, I think it is important to have that knowledge for sure, because it really does help inform your writing, knowing, say if you were writing something about Terrifier, for example, knowing where films of that genre came from, knowing about the directors, knowing about actors. I think it is very important. I think it is, it's something you can research as well. I don't think people need to necessarily have been into the genre for decades and decades, have decades of writing behind them to be able to do these things. But I do think a prior knowledge is definitely important. And I think that's where a lot of people are getting upset with influencers being invited to premieres over journalists, because it can be influencers that don't have any knowledge of what they're seeing. And then they're getting to interview talent that writers who are really toiling away at their career haven't got access to purely based on follow accounts and the amount of people their posts can reach. It doesn't seem fair because then we're seeing videos coming out on Twitter of actors, directors, other people in the industry being asked questions that are making them uncomfortable, that's wasting time essentially, Mm. compared to people who've got that knowledge, who can really do a well-thought-out, well-researched interview. I, I I think it's a real shame that it does seem that that's happening a lot. I mean, not long since there was a article in Stage magazine where they were saying that actors, you know, follow account was being considered when casting in theatre. You're like, my God, so whether you can act or not is not as important as whether or not you can help sell tickets by tweeting a link to the theatre you're going to be showing at. That that seems like a weird pressure to put on an actor. Um, and, and the same for, like, you know, the idea of who gets to cover this, not the person who could give it some depth or look under you know, look under the hood. I mean, I get, I get the idea that a, a big studio wants to control the narrative and obviously critics have a terrible habit of thinking for themselves, <laughs> which seemed to be the, you know, the subtext of the whole article is that if you think for yourself, you're not going to get access to the big films anymore. Absolutely. I mean, personally, I've, I mean, I've written good reviews, I've written bad reviews, I've written lukewarm reviews. I don't think I've ever been denied access to something because of that. But then I don't don't know if that's the reason behind something. I'm sure people who've done it longer than me may have encountered that. But it seems unfair people being allowed to come to premieres where they're not necessarily getting the most out of it. I mean, I'd heard stories, I'd not been there personally, from some bigger premieres where people were leaving within an hour because they'd got their content, they'd done their pictures, they'd done their videos and they were done. And then there's empty seats left to watch a film, which critics and other writers could have then used. And it, it... it just seems counterproductive to the studios, to an example. I mean, I I know most people my age and younger don't necessarily believe everything influencers say because we know that it's a curated version of a person online. We know that it's not believable. So I wouldn't necessarily look at a review from an influencer and think, oh, that's 100% the truth mm. compared to a critic that I know that they know how to assess media and I know that they're probably telling the truth of their opinion. As a horror film fan, um, and as a journalist, what would be like one or two sort of dream interviews for you to get? You know, if you're kind of if you could pitch anything you want and get and get it, what who would you who would you look to get in front of the microphone for yourself? Oh, that's a tough question. I've got I've got an actual list that I've written down that I want to start ticking off. My top one I've said over and over again would be Jamie Lee Curtis. She would be the first woman I would re- I'd love to interview just for everything she's been. And she seems like a fantastic subject to interview whenever I've seen her in interviews. She just looks like a dream. She really knows how to answer questions. Mm. You'd definitely be number one. Uh, Number two would be Neve Campbell. Definitely. I'll talk more about later in my top three picks. But she's been an icon to me since I've been such a young girl, even before looking at writing. So I'd love to be able to tell her about how she sort of inspired me. 
growing up. And then lastly, would probably be Stephen King. I mean, he's the king of horror. <laughs> like he's written yeah. so many, so many people know. I remember seeing them on the bookcase at my home from my mom loving them. My husband loves them. He always talks about how his nan like got him to see the films, read the books. So it's such an important thing for me and my husband to talk about it as well. And and what amazes me about Stephen King is that now, you know, King by name and then King Maker by nature, he he's he's there still he's still supporting the the small the small projects, isn't he? He'll still do a shout out. If he finds a film he likes, he'll happily promote it. I remember there was a the British film Caliber that he he gave a shout out on Twitter and that gave it a whole lot of attention that it wouldn't have got naturally. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you do see that a lot in horror. And it's one thing that really attracted me to writing in horror. Obviously, I'm a horror fan anyway, but I do like film overall. I studied film when I was at university and went into writing about entertainment at first. But one thing that really attracted me to horror is the community around it. It is such a welcoming, positive community. I mean, I know it, it does have its dark sides. There are people that aren't like that. But overwhelmingly, up to the biggest directors and actors, to the smallest writers, you do get a lot of support from people and it doesn't feel disingenuous. No, I think I think that's a definite, if you were to sort of, you know, like like the shelves are in in in, in an old-fashioned DVD store, a bit, you know, a, a blockbuster, and you went by genre, I would add, I mean, horror, horror, sci-fi, maybe it's a fantasy, you could say that they 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 all kind of seemingly support each other. But if you were to talk about drama as a community i don't think that exists as a you know it's too ephemeral that as a and too broad a thing but for some reason and i've been to i've been fortunate enough to go to horror festivals around the world and there is there's that you know you've you immediately have a sense of community the minute you arrive you, you're always a bit sort of new kid in the class when you first arrive at one but but very rarely do you leave like that yeah, I've heard much, much the same about like, horror film festivals and horror events. I've not been to too many on my own myself. I've mostly been with people, but I know people who have gone on their own and they've come away with friends for life from things. I think that it's really, really nice. One of my favourites is, the. I mean, back in 2011, I was in the sleepy queue for Fright Fest, which for the listener who doesn't know, before, 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 in, before website selling of tickets and credit cards, you used to queue up some people from like seven o'clock the previous night to uh, to buy a ticket in the cinema in Leicester Square, London. I would get there around about 7am, which is still ridiculously early, considering the cinema didn't open until I think 10 o'clock, which is bad to think I stood for three hours just on Leicester Square waiting to buy a ticket. But it was fun. But I met people who were just the people stood behind me and in front of me. And I see them every year when I go to Fright Fest. Yeah, it really does bring people in and then never let's go, which I think is re- it is a real testament to the genre itself, but the people involved with it. I do think we've got a nice little community in the UK with horror. Thank you for sharing that and giving us an insight into freelance journalism and writing about horror. Um, moving swiftly along then, we're going to do three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Are you ready for this? Yes. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, I'm just going to set myself up. And for the listener that hasn't seen this before, that has come specifically to listen to your good self, um, Rebecca's given me three films, which we're going to go, I'm going to go through them in the order that Rebecca gave them me. And we're going to talk for five minutes um, about each of the films, about what memories they are, what impact they had. And at the end of, at the end of the five minutes, we're going to hear this sound. I'm going to start the clock 
on The Ring as your first choice. Do you want to tell us where that fits into your your life as a horror film fan and as a horror film writer? Basically, The Ring, I it was one of the first horror films that I watched that really, really impacted me. Like, it really frightened me. I mean, the reason I'd watched The Ring, I'd seen it in my local video store when I was about 10, 11 years old, something like that. And I'd, I'd bought it and then bought it home, watched it at sleepover with two of my friends. And we got it not really not really expecting it to be that scary. We'd seen the picture on the front and thought, oh, you know, so it's we're, a girl. T- we're talking the 1998 original Hideo Nakata version, aren't we? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it was the original one. We'd sort of, we'd heard people talking about it. It was one of those people saying like, oh, if you've seen The Ring, if you watched, we were, we were told if you watched this film, you die. Not that it was about um, <laughs> watching a film in it that you die. So we watched it and I was absolutely horrified by it. Like, the scenes in it, the first time you see like Sadako coming out of like the well in the film, yeah. it, it haunted my nightmares for weeks. My parents were so angry at me for watching it and doing that to myself. My two friends that had watched it were horrified as well. Their parents were so annoyed. So it was the first horror film that I'd seen. Like I'd seen horror films before. I'd seen things like Nightmare Before Christmas. I'd seen, not Nightmare Before Christmas, I'd seen... Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, right. seen things like It, Carrie, and as much as I enjoyed them, they didn't really scare me mm. when I was young. But this was the first film that I'd watched, and I was I was absolutely terrified. And it was the first time I'd experienced through horror that you can experience this like danger, this fear, without actually being subjected to it. And it was the first time I'd seen through horror this use of jump scares and like truly haunting imagery like the color palette in the film that very like blue very dark sort of imagery that we do see with j-horror and then obviously like the long-haired female ghost that again we see a lot with j-horror and the themes that it covers it was the first time that i'd ever seen it it's really interesting isn't it how well it functions because seeing that film without knowing anything about you know japanese folklore japanese superstition it still scared the bejesus out of you. Oh, absolutely. It absolutely terrified me. And then I'd watch the American remake after and then watch The Grudge after that, which took it to a whole new level of being absolutely terrified because of how they'd sort of worked on the genre. Because like I'd, I'd read recently, like reading more into like J-horror and watching more J-horror films. But at the point that The Grudge was released, J-horror was sort of, and that was the film that sort of revitalised the genre much how like we'd seen it like scream with slashers it was sort of my entry point into the genre and still films like that to this day absolutely terrifying do you you think some of it i mean certainly as as a westerner watching it do you think that kind of otherworldliness helps to make it more horrifying yeah absolutely like you say like knowing about japanese folklore and like the ghosts in it it's not something when i watched it obviously when i was younger that i was very familiar with so I think seeing something that was so different from the culture that I'd grown up in definitely was quite definitely quite a culture shock. And I think it definitely mm. did aid to the figure in it because it was imagery that I was not used to seeing anyway, but also in films that I'd already seen. And still now, like re-watching it and watching other J-horrors, I do think that because it's something I'm not necessarily used to seeing, the, most of the horror films I watch are things that we get in cinema here or smaller indie films that come out of like the... 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. the UK and the US, mm. when a new horror comes along, it's something that I'm not watching regularly or personally, I'm not watching regularly. So it's more of a shock what you see on screen. It being the first horror film that sort of really hooked you into the genre, but you say that by, and the brackets is, because it scared the life out of you. What is it about young horror fans that this stuff doesn't put us off? I think it is that sense of like the excitement along with the fear. Like I remember watching it and not being able to move. I was absolutely terrified thinking, I, I, especially watching it so young, like thinking, oh, this could be real. Hmm. Like that sort of spending disbelief. But also I think it's being able to put yourself in that situation while not being hurt. I think that's what attracts horror. Like you say, like it's why a lot of us continue to watch horror. It's that being able to experience these things that are so frightening can be taboo, can be really graphic. Do I finish that thought? Yeah, these things that can be so scary and so graphic without actually being the person on screen being hurt. Me being of a, of a slightly older vintage, mine was Friday the 13th that I watched when I was 11. And... Uh... And when Jason, spoiler for anyone that's not seen the 1980 uh, horror film, comes out at the end, that was my nightmares for weeks. But like a, but like a, like as if the horror film was a drug, I wanted that again. You know, you kind of, and then, I mean, out of interest, what was the, what was the most recent film that sort of hit you in that kind of, had you rigid to the chair with, with terror or horror? What was the last film to get you like? Oh, I'm not sure what the last one that got me like that was. I'd recently seen Talk to Me, and that did scare me elements of it. I was not quite the same impact that The Ring had, but bits of that did genuinely scare me because I do watch quite a lot of horror, and as much as I can enjoy them, there's not too many that play on my mind. But what what I'd watched in Talk to Me did play on my mind. I have thought about it quite a lot since watching it. Moving on to your second choice, we're moving to David Fincher's Most Excellent Seven. Do you want to talk about what this means to you as a film fan? Absolutely. So then obviously since watching The Ring, I became really hooked on horror. But film in general, it was one of the first films that made me enjoy film. So then going on from that, I went on to do, uh, at first like my GCSE is in media studies and then went over to college to do media studies and film studies. And this was the first film that I ever critically studied when I was um, studying at Wolverhampton College. So studying it and all the symbolism in Seven, I mean, even just in like the first scene when you've got 
like the music, the cover of Closer by Nine Inch Nails playing, all of the symbolism with the handwriting, all the imagery, and even the lyrics themselves about like sin and being close to God. It really showed me a new way to appreciate film by looking at like the cinematography and the mise-en-scene and looking at what all that brings, as well as just the characters and the plot. So it really opened my eyes to a new way of watching films. And sort of from there, I thought, like, I want to write about this. I want to do more about this. So it's the first film that I ever saw that made me think, like, I want to do more with film. So it was, it was a, a big moment, really, for me. And then obviously studying it at college, it was the first time that I critically analysed and wrote about a film. And I remember doing it and just loving it, being able to write. I think we just just wrote about one scene. We had to pick a scene for ourselves to write about and I wrote about the ending. I mean, even still now, I think it's so impactful. And I just had so much fun with it. What What were you able to take apart from that scene as the, the, that ordinarily you, would have, you wouldn't have seen if you just looked at the surface of the film? And so when, when I wrote about the ending scene, we sort of looked at, or what I looked at, was how we'd sort of been led up to that point through the rest of the story, how there were lots of like little things that sort of set us up for what is going to happen in the ending. So for people, again, spoilers for people who haven't seen it. When we get to the end, we find that the Detective Mills, played by Brad Pitt, his poor, poor wife, has had a head cut off by the serial killer, who is played by Kevin Spacey. And it has been sent in a box to the location they've like been sent to. So I'd spoken about when I looked at it, how obviously his wife is positioned in, like whenever she's in scenes, it's all very well lit. It's all very nice, all very sunny. She's really shown as like a good character. She's like pregnant, we find out in the film, everything's so happy. But then when we're in any other scene, it's very rainy, it's very dreary. And that was a deliberate choice by Fincher. And so that juxtaposition sort of foreshadows that something is going to happen to her. And then in the final scenes, again, it is very sunny, just like how she's shown in the film. So that's sort of linked between the two characters. And then the music, again, using the scene, as soon as he starts talking about his, like Kevin Spacey starts talking to Brad Pitt about his family life, it's just that gut-wrenching weight to find out what happens. And I mean, we never see what is in the box. We're only told about what it is. I mean, if we were, it would be such a disappointment. I think our imagination does all the work it needs to do. It's one of those great, you know, it's a bit like um, what's in the uh, the briefcase in Pulp Fiction, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think it, even now, if I watch that film, I rewatched it recently, I know what's going to happen. I've seen it so many times and I still wish for a happy ending, even though I know what's going to happen. It was made a, lot, a long, long time ago, nearly 20 years ago, and I still, still want it. I'm totally with you. I mean, I think, I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen Seven, but yeah, I never failed to be drawn, sucked into what, I know what the surprise is, so that's not a, that's not a twist anymore, but the way the drama plays out, you still feel the hope of the characters not to have a bad ending. It's kind of really powerfully done. But it is one of those films that, because it's got such a small ensemble cast, we just we just follow Brad Pitt and Morgan Freeman. We are really bought into their routine. We follow them every single day through a, I think it is just seven days they have, or seven days long. We follow them at every single bit. So you really are sucked into who they are, even though they are portrayed mostly through their flaws than through their positive aspects. No, and, and and it does it it sub it even subverts some sort of well worn tropes, you know, the whole Oh, there goes the buzzer. 
Um, I'll just finish my thought myself. The whole, you know, the policeman who's about to retire. So usually that means that they're going to fall foul, and it and it isn't. And, and I, I love I love that part of it. But it's really interesting what you said about the the way that Gwyneth Paltrow is portrayed in the film. I hadn't even thought about that. I knew about I, I always knew about the whole kind of contrast between it's always raining and then we're in the desert. You know, I always knew there was that contrast because it's hard not to miss it. But now you've said it, I, like there is that connection then between how she, because she's always inside, isn't she? So it can be, you control that environment, um, I suppose would be the way, isn't it? She's never out there running around in the rain. Yeah, there's so, there's so many fantastic little things like that that David Fincher put into the film that I just think makes it such an enjoyable watch. Every time I watch it, there's still something new. Hmm. And even, I mean, from a screenwriting point of view, it's it it, it has a, it has a wonderful story that has some brilliantly placed, you know, setups that become beautiful payoffs. But they're not. But they, some of the things keep paying off, you know, multiple times. You know, they you think they're for that, you get your payoff, and then as we see in the final scene, there's like the most brutal payoff in terms of what's set up. I mean, so simple in dramatic terms to for Brad Pitt not to know his wife's pregnant, let alone not to know she's dead. And the fact that I, when I was studying it at college, we were told, and I'd read since, that that ending almost didn't happen. They were going to change it to Brad Pitt bursting in and saving the day at the end. But it was a turnaround and said, like, no, don't change this ending or I'm not doing the film. I think I'm so glad they didn't have the happy Hollywood ending because even though it is so brutal, and I feel sorry for Detective Mills every single time, I don't think it would be the film that it is without that ending, without it being tied up in a nice nice little bowl, the sins being acted out, the serial killer fulfilling their their desires, like their given task. Moving swiftly along to your third choice, um, which I feel we're going to get some in-depth discussion here, given given what you've you've let me know, but I'll let you tell the, the listener. Uh, we're going to go to 1996's Scream. This this one no doubt had an impact on you as a film fan and as and as film memories. So please do tell. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Scream is my number one all-time favourite film above them all. I mean, after studying at college, I then went to go and do a degree in film studies. And I did my final dissertation on Scream, talking about the representation of women and how Scream completely subverted that in the slasher genre. It was something I absolutely loved, loved writing about watching the film. I mean, it really is, to me, and I think to a lot of other people as well, the slasher that really changed it all. It sort of reinvigorated the slasher genre in the 1990s that had sort of sort of become quite tired from the influx of films in the 70s after things like Friday the 13th and Halloween, all fantastic films, but people had sort of become used to like knowing what they were going to see, knowing what was going to happen to the people who had sex, the people who drank, the people who did drugs. People were sort of getting tired. And then Scream sort of changed that through all of its characters, but especially through its own final girl, Sydney Prescott, Neve Campbell, who I'd mentioned earlier, who was the final girl that was both feminine and sexualized, but also consistently comes out on top every single time. And it's just a film from the first time I saw it to every time since that I, I just love it. It's so fun. It's just, it's a nice comfort watch and I can put it on and just enjoy it. And then after writing about it for my dissertation, it was one of the first films I wrote about when I got my first job um, working at the Express and Star in the West Midlands. I to write for their supplement, The Weekend. And 
they had like a classic film section in that. And it was one of the first films I wrote about for that. And then years later as a freelancer, it was the first piece that I wrote for Girls Magazine, which the editors Zoe and Rebecca, thankfully, let me write about. And again, writing about the representation of women, revisiting that subject. And it was a really like full circle moment for me to look on it and think this is one of, again, another one of the first horror films that I love, one of the first I ever wrote about. And then getting to do it again so many years later when it's my career. It, it's just such a special film to me for that reason alone. Thinking then about how the sort of the last girl, the last girl sort of evolution of that theory of the last girl, I'm thinking like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is one of the first to sort of where this 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 phrase gets gets coined. What what was it that what did Scream do then that, that moved that moved the dial forward so much compared to what had gone before? So traditionally, a lot of final girls we see in slasher films beforehand are normally shown as like the virginal, pure girl, the one who doesn't get involved, the one who doesn't have sex, the one who doesn't drink, the one who doesn't do drugs, the one who doesn't party, mm. doesn't swear, and is usually very traditionally feminine. Whereas with Sydney Prescott, a lot of the scenes that she's in, she's dressed quite masculine. She even has quite a masculine name in the name Sydney. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And she does still embrace her feminine side. We do see her dressed femininely. And then we do we do see her have sex with um like one of the characters who does we eventually find out is the ghost face killer mm. and she does not die. She's seen as quite a strong character throughout. She's able to handle herself. She doesn't just run away from the killers, she brings the fight to the killers. And she succeeds, and not just herself, but also alongside Courtney Cox's character, Gail Weathers. We have two final girls another thing that had not really been seen before. True. And the sex for a woman, a woman who is overtly sexual, she uses like her sex appeal to get further in her work, to get the scoops, to get the stories, and then eventually, you know, to overcome the killers. Now, now as a as a film fan of of Scream, and then having written a dissertation about a film that you love. Uh, and it's a question I ask documentarians quite a lot, but when they've done, when they pick a subject and then they've made the film. So what for you, in terms of what you perceived of Scream before you went, before you wrote your dissertation versus what you perceived after you'd written your dissertation, what for you was the biggest revelation you were able to uncover for yourself? Because obviously this is about your own study as much as anything else. I definitely found it very interesting to look, Mostly, uh, like I just said about the representation in it, when I watched it and enjoyed it before, I just enjoyed it because it had a female final girl and a female hero and someone that seemed quite capable. Whereas it was interesting to look at it in comparison to other films. I'd not really realised how different it was to other slasher films that I'd watched previously. I'd not really, really looked at the characters and who they were. It was more a focus on the killers and how fantastic the kills were. As you do get in slashes, I mean, a lot of people do watch them for the kills. They don't necessarily watch them. Go on, finish your thought. They don't necessarily watch them for the characters. So it's interesting to really look at the characters in a slasher film. And it's impacted how I watch slashers in general now. I do tend to look at the characters aside from the killer and the kills. And it's definitely given me more of an appreciation for the genre. I I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, I mean, one of the things that, you know, there isn't, I mean, there isn't major character development in Halloween, but you had you had the mystery of of this kind of faceless killer, which obviously became an iconic horror thing. Which kind of it kind of warped the way of seeing the film as you went. The further it went down in terms of its iterations, the less 
you could see the original one, which was never meant to be, you know, 10, 15 films down the line. Um, <clears throat> and and Scream, it, 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 I remember it just, it just, it, it just felt fresh. I don't know. I don't And I never looked into it like, like you did. And then it's great when you begin to unpack it. And this is a roundabout way of me of saying, one of the things that I've found is whenever I dig under something or dig into it, like I remember reading uh, Carolyn Glover's Men, Women and Chainsaws, which is what, 92? That was written. And she talks about, you know, male gaze in horror, what what, what gender representation is like in horror. And for a while, having read that, it, it, it sort of ruined watching horror films for a you know for for a while. How how do you maintain your enthusiasm for something that you could obviously, with the skill sets you've got now, you could begin to take it apart symbolically, you know, plot lines, character development wise, tropes, cliches, the lot. How how do you maintain the enjoyment of it as well as obviously still being an expert in inverted commas? It, it can be very difficult. I mean, it's one my husband. It- he hates watching a lot of films with me because I will just sit there and say, oh, do you know why they did that? Oh, look at that. I reckon they've done that because of this. It, it can be difficult to switch that sort of analytical brain off. But I do think they can films can be, be enjoyed on multiple levels. Like you can watch a film as a critic and know that some things don't necessarily work and know it's maybe not the best film you've ever seen. But not every film has to be either. You can just enjoy them for the sheer fact that it's fun or it's funny or you liked one small aspect of it. And I think it's it's important to sort of separate those two things. I mean, there's plenty of films that I really enjoy that maybe aren't critical masterpieces, but I enjoy them just because of tiny little elements like that. Like maybe it just made me laugh or I enjoyed a certain costume or a certain, with horror films, a certain kill in it. Well, look, that brings us to the end of your three films that have impacted everything in adult life. Thank you for sharing those stories around The Ring, Seven and Scream. Uh, is there anything you want to give a shout out to in terms of where people might catch your your words around film or any particular publication that you think is a great supporter of horror that's worth drawing attention to? Horror-wise, I would definitely recommend checking out Ghouls Magazine on Twitter. You can find them on Instagram and you can also find their website, ghoulsmagazine.com. I also write or Moving Pictures Film Club. The same, you can find them on Twitter, Instagram, and also their website. You can find me, myself, on Twitter, at BL Says Writes, where I write for everyone from Metro UK to Digital Spy. And I also regularly contribute to Film Hounds magazine, which you can also find on Facebook, Instagram, and their website. They cover everything, all film, but you can find me covering a lot of horror over there. We're recording this on the 1st of August. What what's what's the next piece after the first of August that people are going to see written by you about horror? Well, my next big coverage will be Fright Fest. Will be the next big thing I'm covering for Film Hounds magazine. You can find me there reviewing the films and hopefully interviewing um, the talent they have there. Strikes depending. This this will be going out before Fright Fest. So do you want? Have you got any any films you're particularly looking forward to seeing at Fright Fest this year? Cobweb, definitely. I'm very much looking forward to seeing that. There's a couple I've watched already because of pre, um, like pre-reviewing things, and there are some fantastic films there this year. Like people are in for a real treat. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 